Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. We're doing one of the names of God tonight. And as I was reading the chapter where the name is mentioned, I kind of felt like the Lord was giving it more as a means of directing me to that chapter for the content of the chapter, more as a word and a timing for the season. But tonight we're doing Jehovah Tikkunu. That's the best I can do. <laughs> uh, it's the Lord our righteousness. You can open to Jeremiah chapter 33 because that's where we're going to mostly be tonight. The word Tikkunu translates to righteousness, but it's also the same word that they use for justice. Righteousness and justice are tied together for God because he is the righteous judge. Righteousness is doing what is right, right? Not what we think is right, but what he says is right because his truth is what is right. And justice comes to enforce and to endorse what is right. He is the righteous judge. So you really can't separate God's righteousness from his justice. They come together. We're going to read a chunk of Jeremiah 33, but I'm going to give you a little context before we read it. Jeremiah had been preaching for about 23 years that the judgment was coming. All the other prophets were preaching peace, peace, and everybody thought he was crazy. And at this point in Jeremiah 33, he's actually sitting in prison in the royal prison in the palace in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is under siege, the final siege actually before it falls to Babylon. Now for 23 years, Jeremiah in a time that seemed like peace had been preaching judgment is coming while everybody else was saying, oh no, we're going to overcome, we're going to win, we're going to be triumphant, we're going to come back from this, we're going to annihilate the... Babylonians and the things that they took, we're going to take it back and we're going to be better than before. We will rebuild. They were spending all this time trying to build up their defenses in their cities and preparing to stop this thing that was coming. And Jeremiah kept preaching, it's a judgment. God is doing it. You won't stop it. And all the others were coming against him. And in this time, he's actually sitting in prison for preaching that the nation would fall. While he's sitting in prison, the city is under siege and it's falling around him. So I think it's important to paint a picture in your mind of the scene that he is in the middle of while he's getting this word. Because while all was peace and well, he was getting all of these harsh words about judgment and all the gloom and doom that was coming and nobody believed it. Yet in the middle of the fulfillment of that prophecy, he's under siege, and it was a horrible siege. You can imagine the sounds of war going on around him. It talks about the, the buildings being torn down and the defenses and everything that they had tried to build up to save themselves from this thing instead of just repenting. In the middle of all of this, he finally gets a good word. He's sitting in the presence of the Lord in the middle of a war, getting a word of encouragement about the restoration 
and the righteousness that is going to come on the other side of this judgment. And then God promises him that I am the Lord, your righteousness. I will bring you into righteousness one way or the other. He will make us righteous. So after preaching for 23 years that the judgment was coming, at this point Jeremiah is in prison for preaching that Babylon would succeed. He writes this from inside the prison during the siege. Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would fall to Babylon, yet in the middle of the terrible siege that would bring that prophecy about, God invites him to enter in in prayer to a place of peace and promise as he speaks to him of the great and mighty things to come on the other side of this judgment. In what seemed like peace, God had been warning through Jeremiah that judgment was coming. Yet now that those prophecies were near to being manifested, God then begins to speak of a time of peace and blessing and abundance and spiritual purity and power that was coming giving opportunity in both cases for faith. God speaks forward. If you hear what he says and obey in faith, it will position you for the grace that will surely be poured out on the other side of your Gethsemane moments. We have to believe God in faith. When Jeremiah spoke that judgment was coming, it didn't look like it. It took faith to believe God. Now in the middle of the judgment, he's speaking of the restoration and the blessing that's coming, and it doesn't seem like it. It takes faith. God always gives you opportunity for faith. God is faithful, so trust him. One of the promises that God makes in this situation, in the midst of all of this judgment and chaos, was one of righteousness. It says, He is the God that makes us righteous. Even if He has to strip us of our dependence on that which separates us from His graces, which is our pride, He will make us righteous. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, you can stay in Jeremiah, just a quick reference. It says, No chastisement for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So unless we walk in holiness, we will not see the Lord. Therefore, as a good father, he's willing to chastise, to bring us into the peaceable fruits of righteousness. He is the God that makes us righteous. He does it first through teaching, if we will humble and obey and listen. He tells us what is right. But if we refuse, then in his love and mercy, he will bring correction as a means of getting us back in right standing. He is the God that makes us righteous. So let's go ahead to 
Jeremiah 33, and we'll read it. We'll start in verse 1. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I don't know exactly where we'll stop. We'll see. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time, while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it, to establish it, the Lord is his name. So he's sitting in the prison. Remember the imagery of the situation. The sounds of warfare are going on around him. The chaos of it. And he's sitting in the presence of God. And God gives him this word. He speaks. Call unto me and I will answer thee. And show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city. And concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are torn down by the mounts and by the sword. So in the middle of the siege, the cities, the houses, and the buildings are being torn down. And God is speaking to him about these same buildings. He says, they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my fury. And for all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. They had built things up. They had built the houses. They had built the city. They had actually torn down some of the houses to the foundation to build up the walls. And he's saying it was all for nothing. Everything you built, everything you tried to do to stop this from happening in the physical was for nothing. It didn't do anything. All they had to do was repent and come back into right standing and righteousness. But they tried to do it in the flesh. They tried to fight it in the physical and in the political. Behold, I will bring it health and cure. Nevertheless, though everything was destroyed and turned down, now he starts speaking forward. I will bring to the city health and cure. I will cure them. I will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and I will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. I think it's amazing that through all of the time of peace, he was speaking such uh, graphic warnings of the judgment. And yet in the midst of the judgment, he brings peace by speaking of the restoration on the other side of it. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I will do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all of the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. In the middle of all of the, the, the horrible things that he had allowed to happen in the judgment, he's saying, that's not what they're going to remember me for. I'm going to actually bring so much good on the other side of this that they're going to remember. The Bible talks about like, like delivering a child. When the baby's born, you don't remember all the pain that came before. You remember the joy and all of the goodness that comes from the child. 
He's saying you're going through a horrible thing right now, but there's a purpose, there's a reason, and I'm going to put you in a position where you're then going to be able to possess the blessings that I really wanted to give you in the first place, but you kept tying my hands so I couldn't do it. I'm going to purify. And thus saith the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place, which ye say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without habitants and without beasts. Right now you're saying it's so desolate. And yes, there's going to be a time period where there's not even going to be any people left. It's so bad. But what will come after that, I will. you will hear the voice of joy again and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voice of them that shall say, praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his mercy endureth forever and of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. For I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, saith the Lord. You know, when you're a kid, you don't like that chastisement. But when you are matured, when, you've, when it's done its work to bring you into mature understanding that it was to make you better than before, then you're grateful that your parents corrected you. You're grateful for the whippings. You're grateful for the punishments that kept you from staying wicked. He's saying there's going to come a time where they're going to thank me because of all the blessings that are going to come on them because they're going to be purified through this process. They're going to be matured. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, again in this place which is desolate without man and without beasts and in all the cities thereof shall be a habitation of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down letting them know that this is going to take a while. There's going to be a process for a while. It's going to be so desolate that flocks are going to be able to graze through it. However, in the cities of the mountains and in the cities of the vale and in the cities of the south and in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah shall the flocks pass again under the hand of him that telleth them, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. He's saying, even though it looks impossible now, even though everything is being torn down, even though it seems like we're going in the opposite directions of all the promises that I've given, the time will come. And in fact, this is part of the process of preparing you for it, for me to be able to perform all the promises that I've given. Yes, there's revival coming. Yes, there's things coming. Yes, I'm going to bless and I'm going to pour out and I'm going to use you mightily. Yes, my, ha my presence will be in this house again. But first, we've got to go through the Gethsemane before we can see the power of Pentecost because you're not ready. There had to be a purification. There had to be a humbling. There had to be a bringing back into right standing. They had to cry out. They had to repent. They had to get desperate. They had to learn how to trust him more than the systems that they had become dependent on so that he would get glory for what was coming and that they would rightly represent him to the nations when it happened. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up 
unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name wherein she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. That's where the name comes from. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifices continually. He's prophesying that they would come back and they would rebuild the temple, that they would have priests again. In fact, as the, the history goes, Jeremiah prophesied the downfall of Israel and the overtaking by Babylon. It was in that Babylonian time period that you get the accounts of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. At the end of Daniel and the end of that time period in Babylon, you get Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the restoration when they come back and God provides all that's needed to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. That's when they had real revival. They brought the truth back. They brought the word back. The people came back into alignment with what the word of God said. And the fire fell again on the temple. So I guess we can stop right there. That's good enough. You can read the rest of it. It's not a long chapter. But I find it interesting. It's kind of like whenever God said, here's a fast. If you follow it, you'll be healthy and you won't get sick. I'm the God that heals you. It's in the same manner that he's saying, I'm the God that makes you righteous. But sometimes it's not just a, you're healed or you're righteous. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes he corrects his children. The chapter talks about all the work that they put into trying to prevent this judgment from happening. All the buildings that were destroyed. All the defenses that amounted to nothing all their labors spent in vain trying to stop what God had told them was coming because he had promised to make them righteous and he keeps his covenants. He had given them space for repentance, but they had wasted it trying to physically fight the judgment. Yet even while he tears down all of their efforts, he promises to bring restoration. First, they had to be humbled and stripped to know that nothing can stand against what he says. There is nothing else that can deliver but him. Then he would deliver and restore once they learn the lesson. First, he has to break your faith in the false. Then he will build your faith in the real. He promises to heal them and to bring them into righteousness. To be in right standing we must first come to realize the danger and error of trying to stand apart from him, which actually puts us standing against him. Jesus is always in right standing because he's standing at the right hand of God. So run to Jesus and stay at his feet and you'll be in right standing, standing right beside him because he is the Lord that makes us righteous. First, through the blood of Jesus, but also through chastisement when we begin to stray from it and from his teachings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us 
who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. If you have sinned or erred from the truth and gotten out of right standing, then repentance is the only way to fix it. And it's the only way to stop judgment, which comes to reteach the church that lesson over and over again, that God is our righteousness. So humble yourself, cry out to him, repent, be covered by the blood of the marriage covenant of Jesus and be protected from what's coming. Because even if the nation won't do it and stop the judgment, he can still save the righteous out of it. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 13 says, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and I will break the staff of the beard thereof, and will send famine upon it, and I will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should not deliver this land, but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord. There comes a point where God says, the judgment's coming, nothing's going to stop it. However, those that are in right standing can still be protected in the midst of it. He will not pour his wrath upon the righteous. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. We come into righteousness, the righteousness of God, when we trust God. The problem is that we usually don't truly trust God until we stop trusting everything else. And we don't usually stop trusting everything else until everything else has failed. And then that's when God steps in and we see that he's still there being faithful. That was the purpose in Israel falling. That was the purpose in the siege. Everything that they put their trust in, trying to find salvation when they wouldn't just get back into right standing. They wouldn't cry out to him. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't change their wicked ways. They wouldn't humble. They had too much faith in everything else. So he had to strip that faith away. That's what he did in Egypt. That's why the plagues came on Egypt, was to break their faith in the powers of the gods of Egypt. He had to take away their faith in those things first before he could build up their faith in him. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. He says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. He will shake your faith in everything so that you see that his words are the only things that don't fail. They stand true, even when it seems impossible or unlikely. What God said through Jeremiah happened. 
and everything that all of the false prophets said to them failed them. All of their efforts were in vanity. They were in vain. They came to nothing. They wearied the people in vain, trying to fight against God's own hand instead of simply encouraging them to bow before them. Yet at the end of all of this, you know what brought the restoration back? Ezra brought the word, he opened the Bible, and he read it to them. And they wept, and they agreed with it, and they repented. And they had revival. Took a whole lot of humbling to get them to that point. But God made them righteous. They came back into agreement with what God says is right. Right before this happens, Jeremiah 33 is when the siege happens. A few verses back is that famous Jeremiah 29, 11 promise. We like to quote, quote the promise, but we don't like to read the rest of the chapter to see what the promise actually is. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. Yes, he had a plan. He was giving them this reassurance right before the war, before they went into captivity. He's saying, I have a plan for you. My plan is for good to prosper you. I'm going to have to take you through some things first, though. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years. You're going to go into Babylon. I want you to be prophets in the midst of Babylon. We get all these words, increase, expansion, revival, souls added to the kingdoms. I'm going to send you to the nations. It happened. Not the way they expected. They went into Babylon. He said, be prophets in the midst of Babylon. Had none of this happened, had they stayed in Israel in their corruption and sin, their children and their children's children would have fallen to the same error as their fathers and grandfathers before them, the same pride and rebellion, and they'd all went to hell for it. But God knows what he's doing. And in this, you get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the stories and the, the examples of faith in the midst of Babylon that are still stirring faith today. God stood with them in the fire. You got Daniel in the lion's den. This all happened in Babylon, in the place that they went to. They got increase. The whole nation was saved. Even the king declared that Daniel's king was the true king, the king of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who can deliver? After this sort, they got revival. They got the nations. They got expansion. They got increase. Just not the way they thought it because they couldn't get it with their sin and unrighteousness. There had to be a humbling and a purging and a purifying and a process. And in the end, God restored and more. Rebuilt the temple, sent Nehemiah, sent Ezra out with the word of God and brought people back into alignment. And this time, they were willing to receive it and to walk in it because they realized that they didn't have it right before. When before the people were so prideful, they couldn't humble themselves to God. They were determined to fight against what was coming. 
In fact, they really didn't even cry out in mercy because they had this idea that nothing can touch me because I'm the apple of his eye. They didn't take it seriously. That's why every time Jeremiah prophesied, the Hananias and the false prophets would come. That's why he was in prison. How dare you say that we could fall? We're, we're God's favorite. This won't happen to us. No, it needed to happen because he corrects his children. There's a purpose. He wanted to bring about the promises, but he couldn't do it the way they were. It was too polluted. So he brought righteousness through correction, and we thank him for it. He does this in our lives personally. Many of us have experienced it. He's going to do this to the church. He does this to nations. He is doing this right now to the nations. And we thank him for it. Now, he does nothing unless he declares it to his servants, the prophets. First, he sends out the warning to give space for repentance because at heart he's a father and he would rather teach you. Just like a good father will sit there and tell you what's right and what's good and hope that you learn the lesson. But when you are rebellious, then comes correction. So he gave opportunity first, but when they didn't take it, he brought correction. However, he still gives us the promise that if a nation won't turn to righteousness on their own and the judgment must need come, then he can still offer protection for the righteous within it. So tonight, we're going to close the sermon and the message and the word and the teaching with communion. It's about humbling ourselves. It's about letting him know that we know that we messed up. We were wrong. Now we come back into agreement with you. You teach us. You lead us. You tell us what's right and we'll do it. We repent of our sin. We're washed by the blood. We are forgiven. We receive his spirit. We sit and let it teach us and lead us and we obey it and it produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness in us. The problem with Israel in this time is that they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't cry out. That's why God told them, I have good plans for you. The plans that I have are, are to prosper you and not to harm you. But I'm going to have to take you through some things that make you cry out and come back to me because you're trusting in everything else to save you. You're not praying. You're not repenting. You're not coming back to me. You're not agreeing with the scripture. You're not doing what I told you to. But when you come back to me, then I will restore. Then I will save. So tonight we're going to end with communion because we want to humble ourselves before we have to be corrected. We want to be covered in the midst of a nation facing judgment. This message was brought to you by HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.